Turn with me in your Bibles or in your worship guides to John chapter 19. We'll start in verse 17. And while we turn there, let me just say thank you. It was really fun to drive up this morning and to see uh, a playground being put in. So for all of you who sacrificed time and energy yesterday, thank you. We will begin in verse 17, and we will read to the end of the chapter. If you are able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. So they took Jesus, and He went out, bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified Him, and with Him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples, whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. 
Well, it's perhaps only fitting that one week out of Easter, today is what traditionally we consider to be Palm Sunday as we enter Holy Week, we come to the passage of the crucifixion. One of the things that may have stood out to you right at the beginning as we read through this passage was the number of times that John goes through and says uh, something like, it was written, or this happened to fulfill the Scriptures. If you skim real quickly, you'll see in verse 24, it happens at the casting of lots for his garments. In verse 28, when he says, I thirst. In verse 36, the manner of his death, that not one of his bones will be broken. And in verse 37, that they will look on him whom they have pierced. John is communicating to us that this horrible day, this unbelievable act and atrocity, is where all the stories and all the songs of the Old Testament have been headed. That everything that has gone before is now finding its fulfillment in the death of the Son of God. And John wants us to see in this horrible ending that not only was it the goal all along, but it is the very way that we actually receive life. And what we're going to see in this passage is that John brings together Two themes that he's emphasized throughout the entire gospel. One is blood, and the other is water. But as we consider those themes, I want you to be challenged by the idea, at least the notion that while we have a high value and talk a lot about the blood of Jesus uh, being good for us, we tend to neglect, at our own expense, the water of life. And so I want to see how those two themes come together in this passage and why we need to be a people that both appreciates the blood of Jesus and also the water that he offers. John, perhaps unlike any other gospel writer, wants to fill the crucifixion of Jesus with remarkable significance. Many strands of imagery that he's uh, drawn throughout the gospel are coming together in chapter 19. One of the things that we have to note is that John is characterized by, really by seven signs. Now there's some minor debate about this. As we start the Gospel of John, we see that the first miracle that Jesus does, what John refers to as signs, is turning the water into wine in, uh, in, at the wedding in John 4. And then later in John 4, he heals the nobleman's son. From there out, the county changes a little bit, but most theologians agree that John is articulating seven distinct signs, and those are the first two. The other six are the healing of the paralyzed man in chapter 5, the multiplications of loaves and fish in 6, the healing of the man born blind in 9, the raising of Lazarus in 11, and that leaves us with six signs as we come into chapter 19 of John. Surely John, who is this amazing artist, who spends a great deal of time uh, painting this vivid imagery, does not intend his gospel to end with six signs. Indeed, what he's emphasized, he emphasizes more than the resurrection, and that I think is very important, is the death of Jesus. That the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of the Son of God, that he hangs there, and this is the moment... We don't have time to go, to, I wish we did, to go back and look this morning. But in the last couple of chapters as we've led up to the crucifixion of Jesus, John has gone out of his way to identify that the moment that Jesus has been approaching, the moment of God's glory being revealed is in the death. 
It is in the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, surely the resurrection looms in the background, but for John, that is not the priority. To the same extent that the death is the moment by which Jesus surrenders himself to full faithful obedience to God the Father, and it is that act that affects our salvation. And so this is the seventh sign of the Gospel of John. Now, John is is not being subtle in this. John begins by quoting heavily from Genesis, right? In the beginning. He talks about the Word that was made flesh being eternal. He starts with creation language and now has woven through seven signs, the seventh being the death of Jesus. It is it is a framework of recreation, of things being made new. Jesus enters into his rest, so to speak, at his death, but it is now that creation is completed in a way that God always intended to get to. Things are remade. All things are being made new. It is not so much, we have this tendency to think about the cross of Christ and the shed blood of Jesus as atonement for sin, and we wait for that to take effect until we get to heaven or he comes back. And that idea couldn't be further from John's mind. The death of Jesus has immediate effect. Immediately, the world is being recast. All things are being made new. The result is that we don't think of uh, atonement as a guarantee just of something in the future, which of course it is, but it's something that actually changes us and changes the world in which we exist right now. Tim Freed is, is one of those guys that you read about and you just think, I don't know what makes this guy tick. Tim Freed is the only man known historically to have survived five of the most venomous snake bites in 48 hours. Now you're sitting there asking, how did Tim Freed become the Superman? It's a very good question. He decided that he wanted to be the Superman. So back in 2002, he had heard stories of people like Mithridates in the ancient world who apparently took various toxins in low doses and built up his immunity so that he actually couldn't be poisoned. Legend goes that at his, when he was finally captured, he uh, wanted to poison himself to commit suicide and he couldn't because his immunity had built up. And actually all through the, um, uh, the Middle Ages, into Elizabethan times in England, it was off, it was commonplace for people with means to buy some sort of toxin which was filled with all kinds of very nasty ingredients, including snake venom. The idea that it would build up your immunity and if somebody tried to take you out, it wouldn't actually work at the time. So Tim Freed likes this idea of becoming immune and in 2002 he takes uh, one part uh, Egyptian cobra venom to 10,000 parts saline solution and injects it into his leg, which uh, he begins to do every day for, uh, for a year. After a year goes by, he, uh, well, and he starts to mix in other venoms. After a year goes by, he, he moves it up to one, one part venom to 100 parts saline. And he becomes violently ill. His leg swells up. There's a massive infection. Uh, he keeps a journal. You know, again, what makes this guy tick? Right? Uh, but what's happening each time he does this is his body's coming out with significantly more antibodies to all of these venoms. 
So over time, he builds up and builds up, and now is, is the only man who can be bitten not only by certain kinds of snakes, but actually survived five deadly bites uh, in a 48-hour period. What is interesting about Tim's story is this notion of uh, desiring uh, invincibility. He is consumed with the idea that uh, death is a terrible thing, and he will do everything in his power to hold it at bay and to defeat it. He says, uh, the venom, it gives me something I need. If I had the time and the money, I'd become immune to everything. How much time and money do you expend becoming immune to everything? And why do you have that inclination? Right? You may be sitting there saying, well, that was a bit of shift of gears, a story about a guy becoming immune to snake venom, and now you're asking me to think about the ways that I become immune to certain things. But is that not the case? As we think about the blood of Jesus being something that only affects the guarantee of our future and not the recreation of things now, that means that we live our life waiting for something that happens really good in the future, but having to make our own way between where we are now and that point in the future. And that's a hard road. It's a scary road in which we have to figure out a way to go. And how often do we then try to become strong or invincible or immune to protect ourselves? All right. I see that I'm not getting to some of you. How much time do you spend in the last week thinking about money? Thinking about your health? Thinking about the diet that you're going to go on? Thinking about your future? Thinking about what happens tomorrow? Thinking about your children? Right? All of that is, of course, quite normal to a certain extent, but it is also all symbolic of the ways in which we are scared about the future and we seek to create certain scenarios in which we make ourselves immune from the pain that we may anticipate in the future. You're not that different than Tim Freed. Part of the reason is that you don't really believe that Jesus' blood did anything but guarantee something in the future. John wants you to understand that no, Jesus' blood accomplished something at the time it was shed. And this is where John is bringing together these two themes of blood and water in John 19. And he wants you to see it as significant as recreating the entire world. The blood is important and significant because it comes from Jesus, the Paschal Lamb. The Lamb of Passover who was slaughtered. uh, The the Lamb which was slaughtered to spare uh, God's people from His wrath that was poured out on the Egyptians. Notice in verse 29, you know, John, John just does these weird things like, yeah, they used a hyssop branch. He throws hyssop branch in verse 29 for that which was used to reach Jesus. You think, who cares what kind of branch they use until you think, oh yeah, that's the branch that they used to paint the doorposts with blood at Passover. And it's the branch that they're always talking about being the branch by which one is cleansed by God in the Psalms and in the prophetic literature. And when he goes out of the way, say, yeah, they didn't break any bone of Jesus. Well, okay, he's still dead. Oh, but it's because it was forbidden by the law to break the bone of the Passover lamb. And so if Jesus is going to be the Passover lamb that fulfills the everything that that pointed to, then he too would not have any bone broken. And so his blood becomes atoning in a way that the blood of the Paschal lamb never was that it washes away sin, it cleanses, it offers life. But this is not the only thing, and 
of course, John has had a huge emphasis on the blood of Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. But it's not the only thing he has emphasized. As we've gone through the Gospel of John over and over again, the theme of water has come to the fore in small ways and in big ways. In John 2, the water is made wine. In John 4, there's a discussion with the woman of Samaria at the well about having water from which no one gets thirsty after having uh, had some to drink. In John 6, those who believe will never be thirsty. And in John 7, living water is offered to those who come to Him and disciples of His have living water then flowing out of their hearts to others. So John has painted this picture for us of Jesus who is living water. It flows forth from Him. It flows into us. It flows out of us. And once we consume it, we don't thirst anymore. So what in the world is going on when we look at the crucifixion of Jesus and He hangs on the cross and He utters the words, I thirst. How does the water of life thirst? Is is Jesus incapable of saving Himself? Are the promises that Jesus has articulated up until this point null and void or empty or insignificant? How can Jesus be thirsty? Jesus comes to this place of thirst and shame and death. And this too is to fulfill the Scripture, as John tells us. It is is that Jesus may enter into His glory, which is His death. And He enters into His joy because that is His calling. And so how do the blood and the water come together for us? In John chapter 7, verses 37 and 39, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit has not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. John has told us that in order to have life, we must come to Jesus and drink. He's also told us that we must come to Him and drink His blood and to be purified by His blood. John has linked the baptism of the Spirit with this water that will eventually flow and can only happen when Jesus actually dies and His blood flows. So it's at the point of His death, at the point of His blood flowing, that now the Spirit can be poured out, which is the living water that now erupts, that has opportunity to erupt inside of us and to flow out of us. John in his epistle gets at this idea, 1 John 5, 6, and 8. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these things agree. You see, when John is standing at the foot of the cross, most most people emphasize in my reading that, of course, the other two, um, the other, other two people being crucified have not yet expired. They're not yet dead. Most of you probably have a notion about how crucifixion happens. But just so we're all on the same page, you would be given your cross beam, right? Not the full cross, but the cross beam. And you would carry that to the place of crucifixion where the vertical beams would already be ready. Your cross beam would be affixed to that vertical beam where you would be hung. And you might be, you might be tied or you might be nailed 
to the cross. The point is, uh, crucifixion is not death by bleeding or by puncture. It's death by asphyxiation. In other words, because you're hanging there, you don't have the strength in your body over time to continue to breathe. Right? You can't, without having anything for your feet to be on, you can't move your diaphragm and expand and contract your lungs over time. That's why crucifixion was an incredibly brutal way to die, and it often took a very long time. That's why they're surprised that Jesus is already dead. Right? This crucifixion could go on for days, uh, if not you know, a, a week. So how long you could in your strength. Sometimes they put a platform under the feet to prolong the suffering. But when it was time to end, what did they do? We see it in John 19, they break the legs. So when you can no longer push up and work your diaphragm, then you suffocate to death and you expire. This is what's happening in crucifixion. This is what's happening to God made flesh, what he's enduring. So they come up to him, they're surprised that Jesus is dead. They pierce his side with a spear. And John makes the most interesting comment, the blood and water flowed. And most people say, oh, this is to prove that he's actually dead. right? Because things will circulate, rumors will circulate almost immediately that the disciples have come and stolen Jesus' body. He never really was dead, he just fainted on the cross. But I think for John, it's so much more than that. The John is saying, listen, these two themes that have been threaded throughout my gospel... Now, as Jesus hangs dead on the cross, what pours forth from his body but the blood that atones for your sin and the water that gives you life? And as he says, you know, this was, this is an eyewitness account. We've seen it. It's not simply to testify that Jesus was actually dead, but to testify that all of the promises that have been building in the Gospel of John come to fruition and the blood and the water that flow from his side. And this is what I'm holding out to you this morning, that for John, these two things are so vitally important, but there's a reason, there's a way in which we've, we've overemphasized the blood. Well, that's a bad way to put it. We've emphasized the blood, which can't really be overemphasized. But we haven't really emphasized the water to the same extent. In other words, if you take a step back from Christianity or perhaps even from examining, you know, to take a step back to examine your own heart, you see that very often we go back to the blood of Jesus as having washed away our sin. It's a very common refrain in the church and a common refrain in our life as we seek redemption and forgiveness. But how often do we then go to the same refrain of the Gospel of John, which is, I've come and if I am a disciple of Jesus, I've received the water, that he offers, from which I am not supposed to thirst, and which is supposed to then render in me a fountain of living water to others. You don't have to think very long about the difference between the two and why we emphasize one over the other. The atonement's just granted. The blood is shed. Sins are washed away. Oh, but this is about how my life is supposed to look. Hmm, I'm pretty thirsty for a lot of different things. Does that mean I'm I'm not really knowing Jesus? And... And I don't know that there's water really erupting for me and giving life to other people. right? We start to ask different questions when we start to talk about Jesus being the water of life and how we partake of that water and the water that's supposed to come out of us. It's a little bit different than simply focusing on the blood of Christ. And why I think both are so, so important for John. Let me try to illustrate the difference I'm pointing up. Clarence Harrison... Uh, 
was uh, convicted of um, being very unkind to a woman and robbery, and he was sentenced to life in prison in the state of Georgia in 1987. Years passed. His wife divorced him. He was estranged from his two daughters. His mother died. He got cancer while he was in prison and had a kidney removed. And he had resigned himself to spending the rest of his life behind bars. Until 2004, 18 years after his incarceration, a DNA test proved conclusively that he was innocent. A week after the DNA test, Harrison was set free. It was widely publicized. If you live in Atlanta, you probably know who Clarence Harrison is. He, uh, on the steps of the county courthouse, said that he hoped to get a job, and he hoped to marry uh, a woman that he had known before prison and who had corresponded with him for the 18 years while he was in prison. And now being released, he was going to propose. And there was a flood of support. Uh, he had multiple job offers. Uh, everything was donated for his wedding, from clothes to rings to honeymoon. Uh, he proceeded to get married, and eight months later, uh, the state of Georgia uh, was one of the early states to pass legislation that would guarantee Harrison be paid $1 million uh, over 20 years in annuity for what he had suffered, for being wrongly convicted and losing 18 years of the prime of his life. Before um, Harrison interestingly describes this, this point in his story is the happy ending. Harrison, before prison, of course, had gone there very early and had never had a bank account, had never had a credit card, had never written a check, had no sense really of financial management. And of course, um, being someone uh, who was, who suddenly came into what was considered perhaps in his neighborhood a lot of money, was approached by all kinds of people, and Harrison was incredibly generous. Uh, everyone in his community would say that he was always uh, handing out money. And eventually he started selling off um, his annuity for dollars now. In other words, what would mean, you know, if he would sell out his payday in 2018 for money now, or do some. Now remember, this guy went away for 18 years. When he went into prison, a hamburger cost a dollar. When he came out of prison, a hamburger cost $5. So he said he, as well as anybody knows, that down the road, the money he's getting isn't going to be worth as much. And so this is, is how he kind of thought things through and started selling off his annuity. Long story short, he ends up broke. And he ends up in a place where he, he says, listen, I'm grateful for my freedom. But I would be lying to you if there are days that I was, I don't wish, I, I would be lying to you if I told you there weren't days that I wish I was back inside. Because life was predictable. It was, the routines were set. And he didn't face the same kind of challenges that he did on the outside. He said he doesn't, uh, he says it feels good to be out, Harrison said, but it doesn't feel good to be free. Harrison is somebody who experienced freedom, experienced being released from, from captivity, but upon engaging that freedom, it wasn't something in which he encountered life. It wasn't something that went well, and it's something that he would like to pull back from to some extent. And I think that is not a bad image for understanding 
the ways in which we value the blood and not the water. That we celebrate that we've been released, we're captives who have been set free, our sins have been atoned for, and then we walk out into life in which we're supposed to be filled with this water and distributing this water, and that's not easy. It's hard, and we're constantly tempted to go back to the, the motions of life that are characterized by our old self and the old age. Right? It's, it's nice to be forgiven that debt, but it isn't easy to be free. But there's life in freedom. Compared to Clarence Harrison, Delman McMillian. McMillian, uh, all he wanted to do his whole life was to fly airplanes. And so he joined the Air Force as a young man out of college and uh, started working on planes. And one night in his barracks, to make his story relatively short, he heard a mouse scraping around. And so he set out a trap, caught the mouse, went and disposed of the mouse, and a few days later started feeling sick and proceeded to feel more and more sick. And his mother was talking to him on the phone and said, listen, you're, you're sicker than you think. You need to go to the hospital. Which he did. And by the time his mother, uh, arrived at the hospital, uh, Delmet was in and out of consciousness. And he had contracted the hantavirus, which is carried by mice and is relatively rare, but is incredibly serious. And, uh, his mother shows up and says, what's the prognosis? And the doctor said, one in five survive. And so she is uh, beside herself. Her her son is essentially in a coma. And she leans down to his ear because the McMillian family was a family of deep faith. And she whispers in his ear, if you hear what they say, if you're paralyzed, don't let that get into your spirit because we trust in God. McMillian eventually woke up. And when he woke up, he realized that his hands and his feet were black and hard. In fact, when he banged them against the table, they sounded kind of like wood. And uh, all four would have to be amputated as a result of the necrosis that had occurred from the hantavirus, not getting enough oxygen to his extremities. And so can you imagine waking up and realizing that for the rest of your life, you will not have any hands or any feet? McMillian is a bit of a wonder story, having a mentor and guide who is immersed in the faith. Uh, he becomes the first quadriplegic to ride a bicycle. He works 40 hours a week. He's trying to earn a spot on the Paralympic rugby team, uh, the, the one characterized as murder ball, if you've seen that documentary. There's a guy who wakes up to an absolutely hopeless situation, one in which well, honestly, probably people would be tempted to end their life. But rather than ending his life, he immediately starts pushing in physical therapy and pushing every boundary, and he sets goals and exceeds those goals. And on and on again, he pursues life and becomes life to others. I compare those two people. Clarence Harrison, who actually is exonerated and granted freedom and regrets his freedom because he doesn't experience life, and Demon McMillian, who is stripped of what we would consider to be freedom, only to experience life and to give life to others. And he's our picture of what it means not only to know the blood of Jesus in an atoning way, but to know what it is to drink of the water of life and then to have that water flow out to others. 
What does it mean then to really embrace Jesus as the water of life and to start to drink deeply from it? I'd like to challenge you as we close in two ways. The first way is this. Many of you are not honest with God at all. You aren't really willing to articulate how you feel to Him, and you aren't really willing to call Him out on His promises and say, for example, in the way that the psalmist is. And so what I would dare you to do, and it's a dare, because good things will happen if you do, is to go to Jesus and to say what many of you feel this morning is, I don't even know what living water is. Yes, I believe you've guaranteed me something in the future, but my life stinks. I'm tired, I'm worn out, and you seem as distant as if you're running things from another universe. You say you're water of life. If you say some life's going to come out of me, then why don't you start to demonstrate it? Lead me in a direction where I actually experience that. That's number one. Number two, then, is really a dare as well, is to act on faith. In Scripture, an interesting thing happens. Substance almost always precedes form. And what I mean by this, by that is this, that um, things are created and then filled. You can think of the days of creation and how they proceed as an example. In your spiritual life, substance, uh, form often precedes substance. In other words, we act in obedience before we actually experience the fruits of obedience. Now, if it happened the other way around, if we sat around and simply said, okay, God, Jesus, I'm waiting for you to show up to be water of life. I want to feel that, that mm-mm trickle down inside me. Right? I want to see, I want to be able to see water shooting from my fingertips and giving life to everyone. And then I will really start to lay down my life. Well, then you're just assigning yourself a life that's vacant of faith. The Bible holds out a pretty high priority for faith in our relationship with God. A life of faith is saying, I don't really experience this right now, but I trust that your promises are true. And so I act in a way in which I expect to be filled more with the water and to be equipped to share it with others. What does that look like? What does that act of faith look like? Well, how does it come from Jesus to us? It comes through being hung on a cross and pierced in His side. And that's how it will come for you. My favorite quote above all of Bonhoeffer's is when Jesus bids you come, He bids you come and die. That seems scary to you, and it is scary in some ways, but it is only when we come and start to lay down our life, by which I mean that you sacrifice your time and your energy and your money to the point that it actually feels like a sacrifice. Right? Not that you're consumed with activity that builds up your own family and makes you have the most well-rounded kids in the universe, but that you actually lay down your time on behalf of those who you, you may never receive a thank you. It may seem like the most futile thing in the world. You may say, this is not going to do anything. That you lay down your energy to the extent that you say, my goodness, I don't know how I'm going to finish this week. Jesus, will you meet me and fill me with water, with life? And that you give up your money to the extent that I believe in something greater than myself. 
and the kingdom that exists in my house. I believe in the kingdom of God and the church that is the forerunner of it, and I will invest in that to the degree that I will make sacrifices on my own behalf. Until you are making those kinds of sacrifices, until you are starting to ask yourself, what does it really mean in faith to die? Then the water of life is a pipe dream. It's something that will never fill because you've not by faith engaged any form for it to fill. And let's ask for Christ's mercy that we might be made vessels for Him as both blood and water. Lord Jesus, as we dwell on the, the mockery and the shame, the humiliation and the physical pain and the grotesqueness of Your death, we marvel at Your love and at Your willingness to be completely obedient to the Father. We thank You that not only have You handled our sins, that You have been victorious over sin and death, that You have been glorified in Your complete submission to the Father's will, but that You have allowed water to flow from Your side. The water of life. The water of which when we partake, we never thirst again. Lord Jesus, help us to not be afraid to risk things to taste that water. We pray that You would make us a people who are bold. We cry out to You this morning that as You are thirsty, so that we would not be. We cry out this morning, we are thirsty, and so meet our thirst. You have provided for it, and we know it is our foolishness that keeps us from tasting it. We pray that You would give us bold faith by which we might be vessels to experience more of it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Offer up your hearts and your minds as the ushers come to take the